Can I have your attention? We have a very long reading this afternoon. Maybe the longest, I should have checked, the longest chapter in Mark, I think. And so um, those of us who are older, we, I'm just saying pace yourself. If you packed a snack, just notice where it is. And it's perfectly all right if, if you sit down part of the way through. Is that all right? This is, um, well, you're laughing now, but okay, in 20 minutes, okay. I, just, I forgot my water, like I'm already distressed. I okay. All right, this is a wonderful teaching from the Gospel of Mark. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, and he leased it to the tenants and went to another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. They took him, they beat him, they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to him saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and we will have the inheritance. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And so they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Oh, why put me to the test? Bring a denarius. Let us look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother sorry, uh, dies and leaves a wife but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for the brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife. He died. He left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, now, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Because David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, David calls himself Lord, so how is he also his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. In his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogue, the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people came and put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his disciples and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for indulging the long scripture reading. Several of the next couple of weeks will be longer um, texts. I want to kind of allow us to experience the whole narrative here. This is the, the last week of Jesus' life. And so there's a lot going on here. But what Mark records is all very important for understanding the point of Jesus' coming, right? What kind of Messiah is he? What is he gonna, what is he gonna do? And so I wanted you to hear all that. We're gonna kind of not, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about all of that, obviously, but we'll talk about several parts in there and see the trajectory. It all kind of goes, goes together. So let's pray, and then, uh, then we'll jump in. Father, we ask now that as we come uh, to read these words, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that you would teach us uh, to trust you, to love you, to know that you are the, the Christ, and that you are trustworthy. So we pray that you would uh, give us that faith as we read now. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're almost up to two years since the beginning of this COVID-19 debacle, right? <laughs> two years, two years that we've been living in this, this kind of constant chaos. But there has been one thing that I have noticed that is constant since day one, since the very first day, March, whatever it was, 13th of 2020. One thing that's been incredibly constant this entire time, and that is that we all have tons of mistrust of everyone and everything that we read. Is that true? It's very hard to know what we can trust or who we can trust, right? There are experts all over the place telling us to do this, 
or think this or act this way, people saying the science says this, people over here saying the science says the exact opposite of that. And you can find sort of experts to tell you whatever you want to hear, whatever you decide you want to believe. And it's just, just go back and look at the CDC's website and their recommendations on masks, and you'll find out that it's very hard to trust what people are saying because the things seem to change constantly. Actually, the first summer that we were beginning to meet again, I, I went to like all the doctors that I knew, and I just surveyed them. And I said, tell me about what you think about this coronavirus. And I got answers over here, like, this is terrible. We need to lock ourselves in our basements for a year. And I got answers over here that's like, this thing's a whole big joke, just go home and live your life. And these are from doctors that I know and trust and love, telling me exact opposite things. It's very hard to understand. There's competing facts. The question of who can we trust is constantly, for the last two years, been very hard to answer, at least for me. And I expect some of you have experienced the same thing. And then we begin to judge one another for who we trust. Right, so if I tell you that I believe that Dr. Fauci is telling the truth, then half of you will be judging me. And if I tell you that I believe some other science scientist is telling the truth, the other half of you will be judging me. We, like, we love to judge each other for who we choose to, to trust. And this has been constant chaos over the last two years. But it reveals a bigger problem that we have. I want to call it a crisis of authority. A crisis of authority, not authority in the sense of power, but authority in the sense of trustworthiness. When somebody is an authority on a topic, it's someone you can trust to tell you the truth, to know what's going on, to have command of that issue. And we have this crisis of authority right now in our lives, in our society. Experts, scientists, politicians, reporters, pastors, websites, who do you trust? People who you thought you could trust, you turn around to find out you can't trust them anymore. People you wanted to trust, you can't. People you don't trust turn out to be right. It's very hard to know who to trust everywhere in our society. We, we see this in a lot of different ways. Just look at diet and nutrition uh, suggestions, if you will. You can find just about anybody saying that any food is healthy or just about anybody saying that any food is unhealthy. Just, and it changes all the time. This is all over our society. It's hard to know who to trust and what to believe. There are voices constantly claiming to be authorities over various aspects of the world. In this chapter, Mark chapter 12, Jesus enters into a very similar space, a space that is crowded with voices claiming to be authoritative, claiming to have authority, claiming to know what's going on, claiming to be the ones who should be trusted. One of the dictionary definitions for authority is the ability to influence others, especially because of one's commanding manner or one's recognized knowledge about something. That's authority, to be authoritative. And Jesus enters into this space in the temple. All of this is taking place in the temple where there is tons of voices claiming to be authoritative. And Mark wants us to have a street-level view of what's happening, to watch as Jesus does something. Because Jesus, in everything he does here, is making a claim. He's making a claim that he can be trusted. That Jesus' voice can be trusted. That Jesus is the authority. And that's what's happening here. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what Mark is wanting us to know. And I want you to hear that today as we look at this passage. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus is trustworthy. So I'm going to give you three sort of headlines for this whole entire narrative. I'm going to 
jump into three specific sections, three headlines about Jesus' authority that we see from this situation. Now, before I do that, just a, a quick kind of clarification here. Two weeks ago, we started this series, and I said we were going to look at one thing that happens each day of the week for Jesus' last week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We started on Sunday. Jesus has the triumphal entry. He rides the donkey down into Jerusalem. And on Monday, Mark records that he goes in and cleans out the temple. That was supposed to be last week's sermon. You were going to hear from someone uh, much better than I, which is Justin Taylor was supposed to be here preaching that. Uh, he couldn't come this week, so he's going to come next week and talk about that passage so we're a little bit out of order. Hopefully that doesn't get too confusing. He'll talk about that and what Jesus did and what he meant and what it means for Jesus to clean the temple. We'll look at that last, or sorry, next week. That's what happened on Monday. Today we're looking at what happened on Tuesday. Jesus does that. He goes in. He cleans out the temple on Monday and he goes home. And then on Tuesday he comes back into the temple and everything that you just heard read is what happens. And most of what he's doing is interacting with the authorities, the people who are in charge. We see in chapter 11, verse 27, it lists that Jesus came back the next day and he went into Jerusalem, and this is eleven twenty-seven. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders come to him and they talk to him. So Jesus is interacting with the powers that be, the authorities, the people who say they can be, be trusted. I want you to notice how the authorities responded. And this is our first headline for this Tuesday, is that Jesus' authority is unsettling. Jesus' authority is unsettling. In chapter 18, or chapter 11, sorry, verse 18, this is in the section about the temple, it says this, and the chief priests and the scribes heard what Jesus was saying, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus' authority, he comes in, he cleans the temple, and people are unsettled. Like, whoa, what, what are you doing here? And they come and they ask this question. They ask this question in verse 11, or chapter, sorry, keep saying that. Chapter 11, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave this authority to you? They're questioning his authority. He comes in, he's doing things that are authoritative, he's claiming to be authoritative, and they're asking him, where do you get this from? It's kind of like when you open a book and you want to know whether you should trust it, you turn it over and you read the blurbs on the back, right? Who, who gave this person authority? Why should I listen to this person? That's what they're asking Jesus. We see what you're doing. You're claiming to have authority. We're a little scared of that. We want to know why we should trust you. And this is the reality that happened with Jesus wherever he went, is that all other authorities became unsettled when Jesus walks into the room. Jesus walks into the room, he claims to be an authority, and all other authorities become unsettled. It's a little like when my sons are building block towers in their room, and Jack, who's my 11-month-old, crawls into the room. Everyone in the room becomes unsettled. Right? Jack's not doing anything, he's not out to kill them, he's not out to hurt them, but by his mere presence in the room, people are unsettled, and they're screaming and yelling and panicked voices coming. That's kind of what is happening. Jesus walks into the temple, and all of the authorities are like, oh, no, 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 what are you doing? How, how, how dare you? What, what, right, what right do you have to be here and to say what you're saying and to have this authority? And this is the effect that Jesus has on authorities. Jesus is not, he can't just be ignored, he's not just a sideshow. When Jesus shows up places, People in charge get worried. People who are authoritative become worried. And we hear Jesus, and sometimes when we hear Jesus' authority, we applaud it. 
Right? You've read some things in the Gospels, and you, like, you love it. You're like, this Jesus is the best. And then you read the next line, and you're like, ugh. And you're appalled at what Jesus is saying or doing. Right? There's times when some people will see what Jesus says about loving the poor, and they applaud that. They're like, Jesus cares for the poor. And then in the next sentence, he's talking about judgment, and they're appalled. Others of us applaud when Jesus talks about ethics, and yet we look at the company that he keeps, and we're appalled. Either way, there's some response to what Jesus is doing that is unsettling. It doesn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative, whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian. It doesn't matter whether you're a capitalist or a socialist or blue-collar or white-collar. It doesn't matter whether you work hard or whether you're lazy. It doesn't matter whether you live in an urban area or a rural area. No matter where you are, who you are, if you encounter Jesus for real, you will be unsettled by him. Because he claims to have authority. He claims to be one who speaks with authority. If Jesus doesn't unsettle you, then you're not listening to him closely enough. Right? We often create Jesus in our own image. Which is, I don't know how often you feel like Jesus agrees with you. But if Jesus is always agreeing with you, then it's probably not Jesus that you're listening to. Right? You look, listen to some people and you might think that Jesus is like a, you know, a, a hippie that runs a dog shelter and likes to recycle. Right? Others of you might listen to people talk about Jesus and he sounds like he is an orange-haired businessman. Right? Who's here to save us from socialism. Right? We create Jesus in our own image to save us from the things that we think are wrong. And if we're not careful, if we're not stepping back and objectively listening to Jesus, we create him in our own image. Jesus should be unsettling to you. There should be times when you applaud him because he lines up with what you think, and there should be times when you are appalled at him if you're listening carefully to what he says. The question is, where do you applaud Jesus when you read the Gospels? What do you like about what he says? Do you like how he cares for the poor? Do you like... His ethics? Where are you appalled by him? Where do you get a little unsettled? You're like, oh, I, you want authority over that too? I, who gave you that authority, right? We ask the same question that the scribes and the other authorities ask. And in, in our country, in our culture, authority is an interesting thing because we are, we are secular individualists which means that authority rests with us, right? In this culture, all the, the great throngs, all the crowds that are listening to Jesus talk, they have no authority over anything. In that culture, the, the people with power held all the cards. In our culture, it's you who define reality. You get to decide who to listen to, right? This is what we've discovered in the pandemic. I don't know who to trust, so I just trust whoever I decide is most trustworthy, and in our culture, we are the ones who have the final authority. And so that means that when we come in contact with Jesus who challenges authority, we should be unsettled. Because we are our own authority. Jesus enters with this claim, you're not your own and it's unsettling. And that's the first thing that we see. This is the first headline for Jesus' entrance into the authorities to talk with them is that Jesus' authority is unsettling. Then there's another headline. Jesus' authority is unimpeachable. Unimpeachable. You know the word impeach, not in the political context, but 
If you impeach a witness on the stand, that means the witness is no longer credible. Jesus' authority is unimpeachable, and this is what the authorities do. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're trying to discredit Jesus' authority. They see him, they're unsettled by him. What do they do? They attack. They're like, we're going to prove that this guy cannot be trusted. We're going we're to undermine his credibility. And they challenge him three times. Three different groups of people come up and they try to trick him to undermine his credibility to stop the crowds from listening to him. And there's three challenges here. They're each interesting on their own for their own right. We're going to kind of look at the bigger picture here. The first one is in verses 13 to 17, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, I think I mentioned this in a previous sermon, but the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're not friends. Okay, this is like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell banding up together to like go attack some other person. Like this is an unlikely alliance of these political parties. And they're religious, but they're also political. And what they do first is they challenge Jesus' political acumen. You see the flattery in here? They're using flattery to try and trick him and impeach his character and his authority. And they ask this question about Caesar and trying to trick him, trying to get him either against the people or against Rome. If he says that you shouldn't pay taxes, obviously Rome's going to be unhappy with that. And if he says that you should pay taxes, the people are going to revolt because they don't like Rome and they don't want to pay taxes. And Jesus answers brilliantly, so much so that these people who were there to trick him, to impeach him, marvel. Like we don't even we don't understand how to respond to that. And Jesus passes this test. He cannot be impeached by these by this political challenge. It's a little pandemic side note here. Um, a lot of the um, a lot of the conversations we've had over the last couple of years with regard to political authority have. Um, have kind of positioned us as Christians over against the government. Should we obey God or should we obey man? Right? We've talked a lot about pandemic restrictions and things like that, and they've been posed uh, in this context, kind of thinking of Acts, right, where the, the apostles say, we can't obey man, we have to obey God, and we've used that as one way to talk about and think about our political reality. The, Jesus here gives us a different way to think about it. Right? They, they, they're talking about Caesar. I don't know if you know anything about Caesar. We live in a country where... You know, we don't want to be governed. No, there's no taxation without representation. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do unless we have say in it. Um, let me just tell you this. There was no consent to be governed by the people who Caesar ruled. Right? Caesar is a brutal dictator. And what does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. <laughs> just want to throw that out there as a side note here. When we think about our relationship with the government, there are multiple ways to think about it. And these are some of the things that, if we're honest appall us about what Jesus is saying. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Anyway, Jesus passes the first test by the Pharisees and the Herodians, this political test. So then we get the second group. It's the Sadducees. These are religious people, and they're going to bring a theological challenge. Verses 18 to 27, they come up, and they ask this very complicated question about people dying and wives and resurrection and it's a very interesting thing to study on its own right, but the point is that they're trying to have a little gotcha here, a theological gotcha. It's like you're in a seminary class, Jeremy, you're in a seminary class, and there's that, there's that seminary student that always wants to try and gotcha the, the, the professor. That's what they're trying to do. They're like, all right, we're going to go to this rabbi, and we're going to try and gotcha. You, you don't know what you're talking about, theologically speaking. And what does Jesus say? He says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This is the two things that these people would have believed that they did know. 
They knew the power of God and they knew the scriptures. And Jesus says, you are quite wrong. And that's all that Mark records. He clearly passes the test. They're trying to trick him theologically. He couldn't be tricked politically. Now he can't be tricked theologically. And then a scribe comes up. Now the scribes are the experts in the scriptures and the experts in Jewish law. And this is kind of like an academic challenge. So there's a teaching rabbi here in the temple. Let's test him to make sure he knows what he's talking about academically. And he asked this question about what's the most important law? And this is a common question to ask visiting rabbis. And he's trying to test Jesus. Does Jesus know what he's talking about? Can we impeach his credibility by showing that he doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to the law? And Jesus answers so well that the scribe, who hates Jesus with all the other scribes, responds well to him. He passes not only the political test, but the theological test, and now an academic test. And in verse 34, Mark sums up the content here. After that, no one dared ask him any questions. Why is this in this part of the story? Why is Mark recording all of this stuff in the final week? Why do we have these theological and political and academic, like, nitty-gritty debates in the last week of Jesus' life? You're like, shouldn't he be dealing with more important things? The answer is no. Mark is telling us that Jesus walked into a hornet's nest of authority and declared himself and then proved himself to be above all of them, passing all of their tests. I just wonder what that's like in our context. All of these voices, what would it be like to have somebody who would walk into the room and would just amaze every single party and every single group and every single person from every side who would say, we have no more questions. No more questions, Your Honor. We can't impeach your character. You are proven to have authority. And Jesus cannot be impeached. The question for us as we engage with Jesus, as we think about what Jesus came to do, where do we, where do we try to impeach Jesus' words or his character or his authority? Where we all push back on him in different ways. We all think we know better when it comes to his teaching on ethics, when it comes to his teaching on suffering, when it comes to his teaching on wisdom, there's ways in which we push back, right? It's like, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Surely he doesn't mean I should do that when my neighbor, you know, puts a rut mark in my lawn. Then it's okay for me to go and run over my neighbor's lawn. Or there's, it's a silly example, but there's ways in which we, like, we, we love to follow Jesus until we don't. We love to obey him, we love to affirm his authority until we don't, until all of a sudden we're like, what, surely Jesus can't, is wrong about that. Surely this way is... Where do we, where do, we do that? We, we, because we're our own authority and because Jesus' authority unsettles us, we respond the same way the scribes do. It's something we all need to consider. Right? When Jesus says, forgive or you will not be forgiven, <laughs> surely he doesn't mean that. Right? We, there's, you read Jesus carefully and you'll be unsettled and you will find yourself pushing back trying to impeach his authority. So if the first headline is Jesus' authority is unsettling, the second headline here is that Jesus' authority is unimpeachable, but then the third one is the most interesting one, and that is that Jesus' authority is unmatched. It's not that we can't push him off. It's that no one has authority even remotely close to his authority. Look at, if you have your Bible, or Molly, if we can put up verses 35, 36, and 37. The, the first time I read this 
I was reading Mark through last fall to prepare for this series, and I read this, these three verses, and I wrote, huh, question mark, in the margin of my Bible. I was like, what, what is this about? This is like, again, it makes me think of the like, snarky seminary student that's trying to trick the professor. It's like, what is, why is Jesus talking about some nuance of some Old Testament? This, this can't be very important, Mark. I think you forgot it needed to get edited out. It should have been in a footnote. shouldn't have been here in the main text. Well, he's quoting from Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. This is a big deal. This is an important passage. Psalm 110 is an important messianic text about what the Messiah would be and what he would do. And it was at this point that people were beginning to get the feel like Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. He never said that outright, but people are beginning to suspect he's claiming to be something more than just a rabbi. And he asks this question, how can the scribes, who's pushing back on the authorities, how can the scribes say, it's kind of his turn to ask the questions, right? He's been asked all the questions. Reminds you of Job, where people are throwing stuff at God, and at some point, there's like a full stop, and then God turns and says, well, I'm going to ask you some questions. This is Jesus. He's passed all the tests. No one's asking him any more questions, so there's awkward silence. So Jesus is like, let me ask a question. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And what he's talking about here is that the scribes were saying that the Messiah was going to have Davidic authority. His authority would come because he was the son of David, right? The sons of David were royal. He was going to be a king because he was the son of David. And they believed that's what his authority would be. He would be the king. And Jesus says, that's not exactly correct. David himself says, and this is from Psalm 110, the Lord God said to my Lord, my master, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. There's three characters here. There's God, Yahweh God, that's Lord, the beginning of the text. Then there's David writing the text. And then there's my Lord, this other person. Who is this? Which the Jews would have agreed this was the Messiah. This was the person who was coming to save. This is what I mean. It feels like it's some kind of technicality. Right? It's like, you've got to get your mind around that. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you scribes say that the Messiah is just going to come and be here with Davidic authority. He's just going to be a king. But no, he's greater than that. He actually has divine authority. This is the moment in the whole text. This is kind of the epicenter of this entire episode where Jesus is past all the tests and he stands up and he says, in a way that only Jews would understand, I am God. I have divine authority. My authority is not some kind of authority like you all have. It's not gotten from anyone. It doesn't come from an advanced degree. It's not because I study with such and such a rabbi. It's because I am divine. He's claiming to have unmatched, unequaled, unparalleled authority. This is Mark aiming not at our minds, but at our hearts as we read this story. We're unsettled by Jesus' authority because we sense he has it. And then we see he can't get pushed over. And right here, he's saying, Jesus is not just another voice vying for your attention amidst the sea of voices. He's not just another tweeter or another blogger or another whatever. He's not just another person trying to convince you that he knows what's best. He's actually divine. He has perfect, 100% trustworthy authority all the time. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus is making this claim, and now Mark, through writing it, is making an appeal to you. Whether you applaud Jesus or wherever you applaud him and wherever you're appalled by him, at the same time, Jesus is making an appeal 
to you. He can be trusted. This is the whole point of recording all of this in the last week of Jesus' life. He comes into the temple and amidst all the authorities, he stands up and says, above all authorities, I can be trusted. My words, my actions are trustworthy. Consider what that would be like. Could it be true (laughs) that there is a person whose words you never have to doubt? You never have to go Google to see if it's right whose motivations and whose grasp of reality, political realities and theological realities and academic realities is always perfect, who walks into this scenario and shuts everyone up with the amazing perfection of his knowledge, even while trying to be tripped up. How good would that be to have that person, to have a Savior who is absolutely 100% trustworthy all the time? That's the best news in the world. (laughs) living in our world where you literally cannot trust anyone or anything. (laughs) A Savior who can be trusted. Do you trust Jesus and his words? That's the claim of this text. Jesus can be trusted. Do you trust him? Do you trust his authority over the world? One final application here is what Jesus does next. He claims he can be trusted, and then he says, Beware the scribes. Beware all other authorities. Why? They like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings, and they like the best seats, and they like the places of honor at the feast. They like to pretend like they have authority. All other authorities are false compared to Jesus. And yet we entrust ourselves to them all the time. We entrust ourselves to other authorities. We attach ourselves to them. We make our happiness dependent on them. Jesus is saying, hey, I can be trusted and beware of entrusting yourself to other authorities. Now this doesn't mean disobey them, right? Render to Caesar, but don't entrust yourself to him. Render to the scribes what is the scribes, but don't entrust yourself to them. Render to the government, what is the government's, but don't entrust yourself to them. Render to the politicians and to the reporters and render to them what is theirs, but don't entrust yourself to them. Instead, entrust yourself to me. That's what he's calling for. What, in, what authorities are you tempted to entrust yourself to? Political, religious, academic. All other authorities will let you down eventually. <laughs> Only Jesus can be trusted. His authority is unsettling but it's also unimpeachable and unmatched and jesus is worthy of your trust he is it's the point of this being here on monday jesus entered into jerusalem with this intent to save right he says i come to save and on tuesday jesus demonstrates that he's worthy of your trust that he's trustworthy that his authority can be trusted how rare it is to find someone who can be trusted that's jesus he can be trusted Father, we live in a world of competing opinions, competing facts even, where we find trust to be very hard to come by, where we feel like the things that we read, the things that we hear, even the things we believe are shaky, are changing, the people we believe in are disappointing us. 
And it causes chaos in our life. It causes chaos in our relationships as we pit ourselves against one another and we pit authorities against one another. Father, let us see through this. Let us see clearly in the midst of all of this that as we walk, we can trust you and your voice, that you will be the one voice we listen to that never lets us down. Give us hope in that and give us clear vision to, to see and believe and hear what you are saying and to listen. Let us know that you are trustworthy in a world of things and people that cannot be trusted. We pray now, as we do each week for the things that we give, as we offer our lives to you, as we offer our talents, our time, and our money to you, that you would bless them for your kingdom. We pray it in your name.